Hello and welcome. My name is uh, Adam Curtis and I'm the curate here at Christchurch. And please do keep uh, Micah chapter 2 open in front of you as we hear all that our living God has to say to us. And as we come to God's word, let's ask for his help uh, in prayer. Dearest God, King of kings and Lord of lords, we thank you that you have not left us stumbling in the darkness, but your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you that your word is relevant and true. And we pray, Father God, that as we come to it this day, you might speak to us, you might lead us, you might guide us, so that we might more truly be your people. In the name of Jesus, amen. How do you react to an opinion you don't like? How do you react to an opinion you do not like? Are you a bit of a bull? The horns come out, you see red and you just charge? I once worked uh, in, a, in a team of eight of us, and in this team of eight, there were six bulls. It was the most dysfunctional team I have ever been a part of. I remember once we had, a, had, a, had, a, had to make an important decision, and four of those bulls turned on two of the others. There was shouting, there were strong words, there were doors being slammed, and this was in an adult working environment. <laughs> Once the bulls got out, once they saw red, everyone got angry. How do you react? It's an opinion you don't like. Maybe you're not a bull, maybe you're an ostrich. (laughs) Maybe it's like, no, I'm going to get my head in the sand, I'm just going to ignore this for a moment. It's sort of, I wonder if it's always fair to to, to say this, but but it was said at the time that George W. Bush acted a bit of an ostrich when... uh, he was, um, on the day of 9-11, he was reading to a, a kindergarten group, I believe it was, and he, one of his aides came and whispered in his ear that a plane had just crashed into the World Trade Center, and he just kept on reading. He sort of ignored what he heard and just kept on reading. Was that an ostrich moment? Was he just trying to gather his thoughts? Who knows the reality of it? But is, is, is that sometimes what we can do? When we, when we hear bad news, we're like, okay, head in the sand sort of moment. I've just got to ignore it. Or maybe we're someone who, who just looks a distraction. <laughs> maybe that distraction is uh, the classic sex, drugs, rock and rolls, the next high, the next like, moment of excitement. Maybe that distraction is just, well, what can I watch on Netflix? And I start watching this thing on Netflix, and then I watch the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and boom, the day is gone. <laughs> and I haven't had to think about that thing, which has been said. When I look at myself, and I think, how do I react to an opinion I don't like. If I'm being totally honest, I mope. (laughs) I get pretty low and I just get very mopey. And I sort of have to work quite hard to process the thoughts uh, of everything that has just happened. What about you? How do you react to an opinion that you don't like? When we come to God's word, we come and we hear lots of things which we don't don't naturally always want to hear. And we don't naturally always like. And the big question is how are we going to react? How are we going to react to things we don't like from God's word? Well, today, as we land in Micah chapter 2, we land uh, into the Old Testament 
and as we come to hear God's word, and we land into a, a time of importance of a historical context. That historical context uh, the, is we're talking about the people of Israel. Um, this is before Jesus has, has come. This is the Jews, and they're living divided. You've got the northern kingdom, which is the larger side, made up of ten tribes. You've got the southern kingdom, the smaller side, made up of two tribes. They're, they're an unhappy sort of nation in their two kingdoms. And in these uh, two sort of kingdoms, they, there's idol worship is going on. People are sort of turned away from, from following the living, living God and turned to other, other gods instead. And there is a threat in the air. There is a threat that Assyria, which has become this mighty empire, is going to come in and sweep them all away. And as they look at Assyria, it is terrifying. And it's very much in view that this mighty force is going to come and sweep them all away. So that's our historical context. And then we come to, to Micah, who's a, a prophet. And a prophet is a, sort of like a God's voice box. God sends his Holy Spirit, and he fills his prophet up. And through his Holy Spirit, he speaks through. So even though these are human words, they're God's words, because they have been spoken by God. And we might think, why on earth do you want to listen to the voice of a prophet from literally thousands of years ago in a historical context which is just so alien to our own? Why would we want to listen? Well, the uh, theologian um, uh, Packer, in his lovely book, Knowing God, says, these are not relics of a bygone age, but an eternally valid revelation of the mind of God. These are not relics of a bygone age, but an eternally valid revelation of the mind of God. We don't listen to, to Micah because his situation is similar to ours, because it's not particularly similar when we really think about it. We listen to Micah because through his words we're discovering truths about God. And as we discover these truths about God, we're discovering his priorities for our world. And what are these truths that God wants us to encounter? These revelations. Well, firstly, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, we hear about a great woe. A woe to those who plan iniquity. Woe. Now, a statement of woe is, it can almost be a, a lament. A, sort of a lament you might get at a, a funeral. That cry of sadness, that woe. But a woe is also a, a word of judgment. And that seems to be the sense of the word here, that it is a word of judgment. God is judging these people who, who plot evil in their beds, who use their powers to oppress, who desire the property, the field of other people. They desire it, and they have no rights to it, and yet they take it. They take people's homes. And in taking people's fields and their homes, they're also taking their very livelihoods, because these people would have lived off the land. And as they take their fields and their homes, they're also robbing their children and their children's children and their children's children's children of an inheritance and of their livelihoods. And this act of robbing their homes and their fields and their land, it is an act which suddenly makes that individual who has been stolen from, they lose their independence. And, and, and either they've got to become a slave or they've got to become a, a servant. They've, they've lost their ability to, to feed their own family. But thievery of the land is, is problematic also because of who the land 
really belongs to. It's problematic because of who the land really belongs for it to. A theologian called uh, Leslie Allen says, at the forefront of Israelite economic theory stood the principle that the land was Yahweh's and that the people received it from him as a sacred trust which was handed down from generation to generation, from heir to heir. To steal the land, it is robbing someone of their ability to feed their own families, and the person they are robbing it from is Yahweh. It is the Lord God. So what is the Lord's verdict to this? We see that in verses 3 to to 5. Let's just read uh, the first ones of those. Verse 3. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. The Lord, he is not happy. He is that judge who is looking down on what is occurring and he is not happy with what he is seeing. He is not happy with with those who steal another's livelihood. He is not happy with those who are robbing others of, of, of what is rightfully his to give out. And and this Lord who will use the mountains as footsteps and will walk down upon them, he will enter into their reality and he will bring his judgment. And the judgment he is bringing here, it is an eye for an eye justice. These people who have gone and, and stolen and taken that which isn't theirs, well, that which is theirs will be taken from them and given to another. It's an eye for eye justice. And then uh, let's look at verse 5, the conclusion of that. Therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. This eye for eye justice involves this land being taken from them, which they've taken from others, but it also involves them removing sort of their, 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 their ability to speak into the situation in the future. Because this verse 5 is speaking about an assembly of the Lord, the Lord's people who are gathered together to decide who gets to basically look after the common land in Israel. And actually they're going to lose any right to have a speaker who decides who's going to look after that common land. They will have no representative. It is the Lord God acting as a judge, looking at all the evidence of what he's seen the people doing, sort of taking his little hammer, smashing, smashing it down, So it rings out and announcing his verdict. This is what you've done. Eye for eye justice. This is now what will happen to you. But in the midst of this historical context, in the midst of Micah, this this voice box of the Lord revealing the mind and revelation of God, there is an alternative perspective. There are some people who are hearing what Micah has to say and they're like, no, no, no. It's not like that, mate. It's not like that. And they're giving an alternative perspective to reality. Let's listen to that alternative perspective in verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? 
Does he do such things? It's basically, Mike is preaching, and then other sort of prophets who think themselves as prophets at least are coming along, and they're basically saying, button it, mate, shut up, jog on. We don't want to hear you. Stop it. Just stop speaking. And why would, they, why would they have this sort of mindset where they don't want to hear what Micah has to say? And one has to assume that they don't want to hear what Micah has to say on one level because they just don't like it. Because Micah has these, these hard truths about their crimes and about the Lord's verdict, and they don't like that. They won't want to hear of the reality of, that God is just, that he's too good not to be just. And instead, they want to cling to some sort of concept some sort of idea of God where God doesn't get angry, God doesn't get impatient. God's like a big teddy bear in the sky. You can just go to him for your comfort, but he's got nothing to say to you. He's got nothing to challenge you. He's not going to bring about any transformation in his life because actually he's got nothing to say into your life. That seems to be this image of what they're, 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 this God which they're trying to create, a teddy bear God who just says what you want to hear and and is cuddly. And has nothing to say about sin and nothing to say about, about justice. It's an alternative perspective. Or you could say it's alternative facts. There was a Trump counsellor, I cannot say this lady's name, Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway, I'm assuming. The Trump counsellor, Kellyanne Conway, is the one who famously used that phrase, alternative facts. She was asked uh, on a TV interview why the White House was claiming that there were more people at Trump's inauguration than there were at uh, Obama's inauguration when that didn't seem to be the reality of the numbers on the ground. And she famously said, well, we've just got alternative facts. You've got your facts, I've got my facts. These are just alternative to what's really going uh, on. And yet that's nothing new, is it? It's nothing new what she was doing. sprouting alternative facts. Because it's been going on since Micah's day and long before it. An alternative fact, an alternative view on reality that people don't want to deal with that which is true, which is staring them in the face. But Micah then offers a correction in the second half of um, uh, verse, uh, verse 7. Micah offers a correction. The Lord responds to these alternative facts Alternative view on reality with a probing question. Um, Second half of verse 7. Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? The problem is these people who are coveting fields and stealing homes and robbing people of their independence. These people are not upright. And thus the Lord's words, they're not going to be good for them. Because his word is only good for those who are upright. And actually these these people, well they act almost like an army. An invading army just smashing through the land and and robbing people of, of their possessions. Actually, they drive people out of their homes and they steal their children's inheritance. Actually, they defile the land in such a way that it, is, it is, becomes barren and almost ruined for them. 
And actually, they would rather listen to that alternative fact, to that alternative view on reality, to that alternative prophet. They would rather listen to that voice than what is reality and truth because the alternatives have something more comfortable to say. (laughs) Hear these comfortable words the alternative prophet says in verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. But as Micah is confronting this nation with how they'd rather go for a comfortable prophet with an alternative view, alternative facts, who believes in some sort of teddy bear God, that even though he'd rather go to them, that if they ran instead to the reality of who God is, the salvation which he is offering in the midst of his justice is is world-changing. Look down with me at these words of verse 12. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pastures. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. The reality of that teddy bear God is he cannot save you and he cannot speak to you and he doesn't have anything really to do with you. The reality of the real God in his justice and in his mercy is that he will act as a shepherd. He will act as a shepherd and he will gather together all his sheep and he will draw them no matter how far they are and bring them into his pen. But this shepherd-like God isn't simply drawing them together. The image is also he's drawing them together and that prison wall which surrounds them, he is smashing it through. He is the one, he is the breaker who will break open the gate. He will take his battering ram to it and knock it down. And then he will lead his people through the broken gate, through the smashed wall and out into victory. That is the image of the reality of the real God in his justice and in his mercy. That is the image of the reality of the real God they're being invited to believe in, to come back to, come back to this God. What's the the main point of these words in chapter 2? What's the big idea? as I've been pondering these words I think God is saying God's word will out God's word will out the problem for that Trump counsellor Conway in 2016 was that she made a claim about these alternative facts that actually there are more people at Trump's inauguration than there are at Obama's inauguration But the problem was that they could simply just look at the footage. I don't know if you remember from all those years ago now. um, And they had that image of Obama's inauguration. Rammed! (laughs) Absolutely rammed. You couldn't couldn't move because every space was taken. And then they had an image of Trump's inauguration. Still thousands of people there, but definitely not rammed. 
you could literally see the visual difference. The truth confronted them. The truth confronted them. God's word will out. The truth will out. God's word will out. It will confront those who want an alternative view of reality. It doesn't matter how hard those comfortable prophets with their comfortable words shout them. God's word will out. Because the reality of Micah chapter 2 is these words came about. In, in 701 BC, Assyria came. This mighty nation empire came and it smashed through. And it, it smashed through all those towns which we read about in chapter 1 two weeks ago. It smashed through all of them. And it looked like it was going to take Jerusalem. And it surrounded Jerusalem. But it never did it. It got to the gates of Jerusalem, but it never broke through. And Jerusalem became like a city of refuge for those sheep who needed a sanctuary. It became that city of refuge for those who ran to it. And that Assyrian army just faded away. God's word will out. So what does that mean for us today, that God's word will out? Well, even though we're in a geographically and culturally very different world to Micah, these words are relevant because they give us a valid revelation of the mind of God. God will act. He will bring his justice. He will act against those who plot evil in their beds. God will act against those who covet that which is not theirs. God will act against those who seize fields and take homes of, the, of the things that do not belong to them. A judgment will come, which they will not be able to save themselves from. God's word will out. But if his judgment will come to pass, well, so will his hope-filled promises. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will gather every single one of his sheep to himself. Jesus will take that battering ram and smash through the wall. Jesus will rescue and redeem all who are his from this world of sin and darkness and decay and death. And Jesus will lead all his people like a victorious king. He will lead them out of slavery and captivity and he will take them to the glories and the splendor of the new creation. God's word will out. Jesus is coming back. And he will take us home. What is God saying to us today? Here in Sidcup, as we meditate upon these words. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Because there are some facts. Jesus is Lord. Fact. Jesus is coming back. Fact. Jesus will sit on the throne and justly bring judgment on all people. 
fact. Jesus will rescue all those who are his and bring them home. Fact. There are some facts on the table, but there's also an alternative perspective. There are also comfortable words. There are alternative facts. And what are those, those also alternative facts in our society and reality? Well, on one level, it's not just one voice. There's many voices and many alternative facts. There's those who want to claim, well, God's not there, so you don't need to worry about those facts. He's not there. As we saw in that atheist bus campaign, God's probably not there, so stop worrying and just enjoy your life. <laughs> don't worry about the judgment. Don't worry about your need for salvation from Christ. Just enjoy life. There's an alternative fact which is more like, actually, God just doesn't care. He really doesn't care. He's more just this, this, this force which will work through the universe and works through, through creation. And you can sort of like, like find some meditative state to align yourself with it, but he's not a personal being with a personal understanding of justice who will bring a personal judgment upon the world. So you don't really have to worry so much about listening to his word and living according to it because he's not really got anything to say. He doesn't really care. And then there's the alternative fact alternative voice which says that God's just a big teddy bear. God is just a big teddy bear. And I think for us Christians, for us who go to church, I wonder if for us this is probably the more dangerous of all of them. The more dangerous of all of them because it sometimes sounds the most like the God we read about in the Bible, but it just doesn't sound like all of him. It doesn't sound like all of him. And it's also the voice that God's a big teddy bear, which I think is also a voice we can sometimes hear quite influential sort of church leaders sort of speaking and saying in different sort of ways. You can hear a church leader sort of saying it in such a sense which we sort of call like the health and wealth prosperity sort of gospel. Those, those sort of leaders who want to say, just believe in Jesus and you'll be rich and you'll be healthy. All your illness is gone. Just, just give me a bit of money and the blessings will come pouring. And yet, and yet that, 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 that image of this health and wealth, prosperity sort of gospel, does it really sit in alignment with our, our saviour who died on a tree? Does it really sit in alignment with the fact that he rejected palaces, but instead was born in a stable? That he didn't ride into Jerusalem on a chariot, but on a donkey? Or we have an alternative sort of voice talking about God as a teddy bear, which sort of wants to say, actually, sin doesn't really matter. It's not really the big thing that we have to be concerned about. I was so saddened, deeply, deeply saddened, when I um, read a, of a, an interview with the Archbishop of York on Radio 4, where he's asked um, quite easy to direct to questions, asking for definitions of sin, and he just refused to give it. He just refused to state it. And don't get me wrong, I think being the Archbishop of York must be a horrible job. I don't want that job. And I think it must be really hard having like one of the world's great sort of journalists sort of like asking you tough questions. I don't think that's easy, but I, but I do think God says what sin is. And God tells us 
where, how he's going to bring his justice and what he's going to bring his justice upon. And I do think we have to be real about that. We have to acknowledge that. And I don't fully understand why the Archbishop of York did that. And I think I could probably create a straw man argument, which I'm not quite willing to do, saying that he completely believes in a teddy bear God. I don't know if that's true. But I do know that some people do. That actually, they don't want to think about the reality of God's justice. And actually, are they living with the reality of who God is in his entirety? How do we know, though, is an important question we've got to ask ourselves. How do we know if we're one of those people who are living to, listening to the facts or listening to alternative reality, to alternative facts? Because I have an inkling that nobody thinks they're listening to alternative facts. Maybe that Trump councillor Conway, maybe she knew that it was all a lie. But I think for most people, no one really thinks that they're listening to a lie, do they? Well, it's, I, don't, I don't think I'm listening to a lie. And I don't think most people willingly go down a route where they're listening to a lie. We hear in the, old, in the New Testament, um, Paul and Timothy, so we're encouraging this early church not, that, that, that soon people are going to come amongst you who are going to give uh, well, your itching ears long to hear. Prophets who are going to give you all your itching ears long to hear, and actually they're just false prophets. And, and I don't think anyone thinks, oh, I've got an itching ear. <laughs> I don't think anyone's that person. So how do we know if we're listening to God's reality or alternative facts? How do we know? And I, I think this is a big and important question. And the, the baseline sort of answer, which I think we've, we could probably all acknowledge, is, well, are we actually listening to God, what God's word has to say? This God who is infinite and eternal and whose word is infinitely and eternally true and good, are we listening to what his word has to say. But I think probably lots of people would say, well, I am listening to what his word has to say. And I'm not listening to an alternative list of facts. Well, in that case, I wonder just some questions just to help us think through. Are we listening to God's voice or an alternative perspective? My first question, do we let one part of scripture squash another part? When we come to God's word, do we let one part squash another part? Do we say this part trumps the rest and helps me reread the rest of it. Question two. Does it sound too good to be true? Does what I'm hearing from this preacher, or reading in this book, or thinking in my own head, does it sound too good to be true? Jesus' definition of discipleship is someone who denies themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Is this teaching what I'm hearing, or thinking, or believing, or reading, is this actually asking me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus? Or is it saying nothing about denial, and nothing about taking up our cross? Does it sound too good to be true? Question three. Is it in alignment with the collective wisdom of the historic church? If what I'm thinking, reading, hearing, is it in alignment with the collective wisdom of the historic church? Now, we're not Roman Catholic. A Roman Catholic sort of view would hold very strongly that they're the teaching of the church has sort of divine sort of authority. And we don't, I don't want to claim that because I think there's been mistakes in the past. But I do want to say, and this is sort of the, the, the reformed position, that the Holy Spirit has been working through his church for 2,000 years and there is a huge amount of wisdom to gain from the historic church. So this thing I'm thinking, reading, hearing, is actually going against the historic wisdom that the church has passed on to me.
The fourth thing we want to ask ourselves. Does it sound incredibly similar to what my non-Christian neighbor might think or believe? Does this view sound incredibly similar to what my non-Christian neighbor might think and believe? The reality of the world and the people around us is that everyone is made in God's image. And so there is wisdom to be learned from people who aren't Christians. Lots of it. But there is also reality that everyone is made in God's image, but everyone is fallen. We reveal the glory of God and the garbage of sin. And so all human wisdom outside of the revealed word of God is going to be tainted, is going to be fallen. So if what we believe is precisely or incredibly similar to what our neighbor believes who isn't a Christian, then we've got to be thinking in our head, well, maybe there's something about what I'm holding on to, which is actually the garbage of the fallen nature of humanity. We should expect God's word to stand against every culture in the world and every time in existence. We should expect it to stand against that. So how do we know if we're listening to God's voice or an alternative perspective? Well, let's make sure we're Bible people. Let's ask ourselves, does, it, does one piece of scripture squash another? Does it sound too good to be true? Is it, in al- is it in alignment with the whole collective wisdom of the historic church? And is it very similar to what my neighbor has to say on the same topic? And let's ask those questions in humility and in prayer, knowing that our God is speaking, knowing that our God has come. <laughs> and in his coming, he has revealed his justice. He will bring wickedness to account. But he has also revealed his mercy. That all who hold fast to Christ, they will be led from this world of death and darkness and decay. Left of this world with this Assyrian sort of invasion coming crashing in. And they will be taken from it and led by our King of Kings into the new creation splendor. So let's make sure we are people who are listening to God's voice and not an alternative perspective. Let's just spend a moment just meditating on God's word and then I'll close in prayer. Oh, dearest God, King of kings and and Lord of lords, help us, Father God, to be people who humbly, thoughtfully come to your word and hear all that it has to say about the reality of sin and wickedness, about the reality of coming judgment and the reality of the salvation that is found only in Jesus. Father God, forgive us for those times when we've listened to alternative voices. Those times where we claim that you don't exist, but that you don't care, or that you're just a big teddy bear. Help us, Father God, to instead 
bow the knee, hear all that you have to say, and hold fast to the word of the living God. Help us, Father God, to know in our heads, in our hearts, that your word will out. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.